This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. In this program, one of the world's top scientists reports on the climate threat that will cause the most evacuations, damage, and maybe migration. It is not heat or rising seas. From Germany, Dr. Anders Leverman from the Potsdam Institute joins us. From Australia, Dr. Matt Santamuras reveals shocking details in cities and how to cool them. From Cambridge University, Dr. Laura Diaz-Anadon warns politicized science endangers us all. Three interviews. This is Radio EcoShock. River floods already displace more people within countries than any other cause, and they affect far more people than other disasters. New science reveals humans will have to prepare and adapt much harder for even more river flooding in the next 20 years due to climate change. Our guest is a scientist with many roles. Dr. Anders Leverman is Professor of Dynamics at the Climate System at Potsdam University in Germany. He is a leader at the renowned Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, or PIC. He's an adjunct scientist at Columbia University in New York and lead author of the latest IPCC chapter on sea level change. He's a journal editor and more. Dr. Leverman is co-author of a new paper, Adaptation Required to Preserve Future High-End River Flood Risk at Present Levels, as published in Science Advances January 10, 2018. Anders Leverman, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks for having me. I know you're busy, so let's get right to the new paper you co-authored. Why pour so much work into studying river flooding? Well, river flooding is, is actually one of the um, most devastating causes for, for damages that are caused meteorologically on, on the planet. And actually, meteorological damages are the strongest damages. If you ask the Munich Re, an insurance company who has the longest record for insured damages on the planet, as far as I know, so um, meteorological damages are important. They will most likely become more intense under global warming. Have extreme rainfall events and floods already increased since the 1970s? It's quite difficult if you ask for the statistics. We have been, and, and a lot of people still do this, which I think is, is important and very valid. But um, if we actually wait for the statistics to be be done so that we can make a scientific statement that extreme events are have increased in intensity or in frequency. It's generally already too late to a certain extent. I, I know that this, you know, this is not a very popular popular way to put it because a lot of people work on the statistics of weather extremes, and then they should continue to do so. But the society needs needs answers before they have already experienced um, this and this intensification. And that's why I very much appreciate that more and more people and more and more research is actually now focusing on the physical mechanisms of weather extremes. You know, that has been done for a long time, but it's done more and more. And we start to slowly understand why things become more intense. And that's why I'm, I'm giving not a very straight answer here. I, I realize this, but my point is that I don't really care whether they have intensified or not, because I know they will most likely become more intense uh, under warming. And that is for very simple physical reasons. First of all, 
warmer temperatures, we have more evaporation on the planet. And the water that we put into the atmosphere has to get out again. There is water, obviously, in the atmosphere, and there better be. But um, there isn't a lot of water that the atmosphere can hold. So everything that evaporates has to fall down again. So we'll have more rainfall under global warming. In addition to that, we have a warmer water, and that's, again, claudius Clapeyron equation, a very simple physics. Uh, a warmer atmosphere can hold more water vapor and thereby can transport more water. And you know what we find, and that is and that is actually statistics, and that's actually what uh, we can understand. It we find that uh, extreme rainfall events increase with the saturation value of how much water you actually have in the atmosphere. Uh, and that's why we have two good reasons why intense rainfall events and thereby flooding will intensify under under global warming. And we've seen a degree of warming, so. There has been an intensification that is not so easily found statistically, but uh, physically it should have been. Well, I'm certainly seeing it in the news. I know from reporting 10, 20 years ago that there just weren't that many extreme records for precipitation, whether it's rain or snow, being set, as I've had to report more recently. But that's just an experience. It's not an official scientific statistic. Before we go deeper into this, are we just talking about river flooding for people in faraway countries, or will industrialized nations in America and Europe also have to make adjustments and changes for this? Well, we, we have an identification of the hydrological cycle, and what's very important uh, in our study was that we focused only on the next 25 to 30 years. And, and the reason for that, generally, you know, climate scientists, and, and that's me included, um, is are looking for, for this century, to the end of the century, because the climate change is a long-term problem. And, uh, and this is where, you know, this is the century in which we have to um, mitigate the climate change and really change our energy system globally. But in this study, we use the fact that the next 25 to 30 years of global warming are already have already been caused by the emissions of the last decades up to a century. And that's a very dangerous statement to make for, you know, if you don't listen carefully, because it does not mean that it doesn't matter what we do in the next 25 or 30 years. Because what we do in the next 25 or 30 years will determine what is happening after 2040. And, you know, once 2040 arrives, we can't do anything about it anymore. We have to do act now. So this was, again, a long answer. But what I'm saying is, in our, um, in our study, we looked at the next 25 to 30 years, and that's why we can make an actual prediction about the intensification of river floods. And what we found is that river floods increase around the planet. But if you look at the adaptation, so also in the U.S. and also in Europe, but if you look at the need for adaptation, something interesting happens. Uh, the need of adaptation, and um, we defined it in, in such a way that we said, what do you have to do in order for the risk of floods in the next 25 years to be the same as the rate of risk of floods that you had in the last 25 years? And what comes into play here is that different countries have different risk aversion. So in, in Europe, we are better protected against floods than in India or Indonesia. In the U.S., you have actually among the best protection, and you are used to this kind of protection. 
Now, if you want to keep this protection in the U.S., you have to do as much as we have to do in Germany in order to keep our level and as much as people in India and Indonesia have to do um, to keep their level of protection. So that takes into account that different societies have set their protection level, their, their need or their desire for security at different uh, levels. And since the U.S. has a very high level, you know, if, they, if, you, if you want to keep it, you have to work for it. Now, this paper is free in full text online, and there's some great graphics with it. And in those graphics, it shows that there are new areas where people will experience floods in the 2030s that did not experience them in that period from 1971 to 2004. Where are some of those new flood areas? Well, that is actually in, in, uh, in a lot of regions in the United States. Since, you, uh, since you know, the, the flood here is defined as uh, exceeding the, the flood protection level, you know, most of the regions in the U.S. are protected against floods. But overall, if you would do nothing, if you would not increase further protection because, for example, the administration doesn't take climate change seriously, um, then... The U.S. overall increases the number of affected people by, uh, by a factor of nine. So there will be nine, nine times more people affected by floods in the next 25 years than there were in the last 25 years. These numbers are lower for China. You know, it's only about a doubling there. And they're tremendously high for the United, uh, for the United Kingdom with um, a factor of almost 30. And uh, Indonesia, India... And also Germany is quite high, so we really have to do something in order to stay protected. Yes, the interesting thing in the United States is that some of the areas where projected flooding is really going to increase look to be in the Ohio River Valleys, the Mississippi River Valleys, in states that actually voted for President Trump, who doesn't believe in climate change. One interesting sidelight I noticed, though, that in California, there's been a lot of discussion about whether a mega flood could happen there, as happened in the 1800s. And there seemed to be some disagreement amongst the climate models about the impacts of this in California. Could you talk to us about that? Yeah, if you, if you have a look at, uh, at our study, we, you know, we, um, it was close to, close to call. That's what, we, what you would call it. The uncertainty in, in California and in, in large parts of the rest of the United States was so big that um, we were not able to make a, a, a definite statement, and that, that shows you that there is a lot of uncertainty here. What is kind of, you know, an, an important lesson from our study, but you know, from others, of, of course, it's you know, it's not. This is not a, a special study in this, is that. You can protect against climate change to a certain extent. You know, sea level rise can be protected against by dikes, you know, by coastal protection. All kinds of, of methods are available. But if you don't protect yourself, then the, the impacts are really devastating. You know, that's why we get these large numbers. That's why we get, you know, an eightfold or ninefold increase in the number of affected people. If you don't do anything, you know, if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, if you... You know, for example, with sea level, sea level, it's a different problem, but it's also a flooding problem. If your dike is simply too low for the sea level that you have, you know, for the ocean height, world's ocean height, then you get tremendously, you know, an, an, a large number of, of extra effects, extra impacts. And the number of affected people increases dramatically. And this is the same here with river, river floods. 
we were actually in our study not able to make a lot of statements about about the Western U.S. It's very distressing to see that the equatorial area of Africa will face even greater river flooding because places like the Congo are, are already poor and poorly governed, if not at war. What changes are coming for that region or for Africa, let's say, in the coming climate deluges? Africa is, is complicated, um, you know, with respect to rain. We, we found, for example, that there was in a different study, but we found in, in that in seven of the 21 climate models that did did these simulations for the UN climate report, in seven of these models, the monsoon system actually developed in the southern Sahel zone, which is at the moment a desert or close to a desert, so there's very, very little rain. And um, if you look at the countries, these include countries like Mali, which have civil wars at the moment, you know, which are in, in unrest, and it's, it's a terrible situation in a lot of these countries. And you would think that um, monsoon rainfall, that is a seasonal, regular seasonal rainfall, would be a good thing for the region. And I'm actually sure it, it would. But having said that, and any changes that are sudden pose a problem, at least in the beginning. That is something that you can't, you know, I'm not saying from a climate science perspective, but, you know, having thought that we're working on societal problems too, if you, if you think of it, if you have a sudden change in, in the climate, uh, that is generally a problem because it is inducing changes in society. Um, we'll, we'll see a lot of fluctuations in, in Africa, and um, studies have found that whenever there are climate uh, fluctuations, you have a higher chance of societal response or or unrest. And about one-third of Pakistan went underwater in 2010 due to river flooding. What happens in Asia in the 2030s, according to your new science? Well, Pakistan was flooded in 2010 and again in 2011. This was a special event. These were two special events which were caused by what, you know, in the U.S. is often called um, polar vortex. It was caused by a meandering of the jet stream, which uh, led to a blockage situation, which uh, led to a four to six weeks long hot period over um, Russia, including Moscow, and a lot of um, peatland burning there or smoldering. And at the same time, a low-pressure system in Pakistan which created the largest freshwater lake on the planet, you know, and was a disaster. And the next year, it happened again. These kind of events are, if anything, underestimated in our climate model. Because our climate models, they are, maybe, you know, they're averaging out the weather in general. And that's not, you know, they're not weather prediction models. So we tend to underestimate these um, extreme events. And we've tried to correct for this a little bit in, in our study, but um, there is, you know, a general conviction that the problem will be worse um, than is predicted by the climate models. And this is also the feeling, as you mentioned earlier, the feeling that a lot of people have. So if we already have a problem, if see a problem in our models, then um, that probably is a problem. Specifically for, for Asia, we have the strongest signal in India, which is close to Pakistan, has more people, and Indonesia, which sees a 26-fold increase in uh, affected people if nothing is done. 
and for these poor people, uh, for these poor countries, it is actually uh, a challenge to protect their population. You are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I am Alex Smith. My guest is Professor Anders Leverman from Potsdam, Germany. We're talking about humans, how they all over the world will have to prepare for coming floods as the climate shifts. I found this paper very conservative in its underlying assumptions, and probably for science that's the way it has to be. I mean, one of the issues is the assumptions based on population that it would be static, and yet we know we're adding another 83 million more humans a year. Why would you choose a static population model for this study? Yes, that's a very important thing. We, so the number of affected people will increase beyond the numbers that we put in, in the model because, as you said, the number of, um, of people overall is increasing. We, for the main statement of the paper, which was how much do we have to increase the protection in order to stay at the same risk level in the, in the future as we had it in the past, we only used the, the relative number of affected people. And so that would have only been changed by a change in the density structure, in the, you know, in the relative density structure of the population. And since we don't have very good means to predict this at the moment, you know, people who work on this, and, and I, I trust in this research, but still... We thought that we stay to a certain extent. We stay on the on the natural side of this problem, and just say, well, if people don't move away, if they stay where they are, which is um, a reasonable assumption for the next 25 years, uh, then this is the outcome. Then you you'll have to protect in this way. And another reason is, by the way, that um, the planning for the protection for the you know for the adaptation is done now. So a lot of municipalities will work with the data they have now. Well, that does make sense, but people are moving. I mean, about 3 million people a week are moving into cities out of rural areas. There is a mass migration underway. Your study does look at a number of big cities that will be strongly affected by river flooding in the next couple of decades. Another question here, the expected increase in extreme precipitation events, does that figure into this study? I mean, you talk about a 1 in 100-year flood. But what if that becomes one in 30 years or even once every decade? Does the study, is it able to account for those kinds of possibilities? So many interviews on this, and this is something that no one asks. I think that's perfect. You're a really good interviewer. Yes, well, this is actually at the core of the of this study. Yes, it does. That's what, what actually, you know, we, we use a climate model, which we then feed into what we call bias correct for weather extremes so that it can reproduce the past weather extremes properly so that we hope that we can have a, you know, some hope that it will reproduce the future weather extremes properly. And then we, we feed this into uh, river routing schemes and uh, discharge models, which have a very high resolution. Then we uh, look, you know, at even higher resolution at the flooded areas and compare this to the density of, of the population. So at the core there's actually the climate model, which is accounting for these increases in the, well, to a certain extent, to the increase in, in frequency and intensity of, of floods. Now, Anders Leverman, you led the reporting by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change on Sea Level Rise. Does this study on river flooding include the growing damages from storm surges running up those rivers? No, it doesn't. It's really separate, and there's a lot to be done there. Um, we actually have to learn a lot about coastal flooding 
um, too. A lot of people work on this. There's intense and, and important work done there, and um, we are not quite finished on, on how the sea level will actually rise. We, uh, we think we can make good statements about the next few decades, but sea level rise is a long-term problem. It's something that we cause now and, and will go on for uh, for hundreds of years. You know, as, as, as we now remember, or some of us uh, remember the Roman Empire, as, you know, as the Romans that gave us the aqueducts and uh, certain, and, and the Greeks that gave us democracy. In the same way, we will be remembered in 2,000 years as the guys who started the sea level rise, which is still continuing. So sea level is a long-term problem, and we have not figured out yet how fast it will unfold, especially beyond the few next few decades. So I think for 20, 30 years we can make a statement, but beyond that it's, it's difficult. And uh, and um, the to, to actually compute what will be flooded and what has to, you know, where protection is necessary is a very difficult problem. I know that people around the U.S. work on this, especially, uh, you know, in, in San Francisco. I'm very impressed by, by the work of the local authorities. But yeah, it's not included here, and it'll worsen the problem. And your study looks at what adaptation will be needed to survive in the first half of this century. But if we can't implement the emissions controls, say, by the Paris Accord, is it possible that river floods will just become totally unmanageable in the second half of this century? Well, you can always leave behind your houses uh, and your and your regions, you know. But if you think about it, uh, you know, that, that also is true for sea level rise. If um, we continue to emit carbon as we have done so in the past, and we continue beyond beyond now and we don't keep the Paris Climate Accord, then the United States will lose about 10% of its land mass uh, eventually to sea level rise. Now, assume that another country would come and say, we take 10% of your, of your land away. I don't think the U.S. would take this lightly, would they? And that's not the U.S. only. And no, no country on the planet would take it uh, lightly to, if you know, if someone takes away their land. But here, we emit carbon, and we expand the oceans by the warming atmosphere, and we melt the ice on the planet. And we just, by that, give up land, our land, to the sea. Some countries will actually be affected in an existential way, in the sense that they will be just gone, small island states in the Pacific. And other countries will just lose important coastal areas, you know, like in Florida, obviously, but the Florida Keys, you know, they can, they will most likely not be able to protect uh, the Florida Keys, but also New York and, and, and San Francisco um, get problems. They, they don't have to vanish, but they, they, um, they get problems. And the same will be with river floods. With river floods, it's more complicated because they, they come suddenly. There's no you know, um, slowly increasing sea level that you can see, um, you know, increasing and, and you can protect against, they're coming suddenly. So if you don't take the science as serious and if you don't protect in accordance with the science, then it's really dangerous for the lives of, of the population. As we wrap up, many of us are concerned that government-funded climate science is being dismantled and defunded in the United States and in Australia. We need to hear that Europe, China, and other countries can continue the science we need. Could you just briefly tell us what is the Potsdam Institute and what does it work on? 
Well, the Potsdam Institute is working on this on, on all parts of the climate problem. We um, have a physical unit, if you like, and that's, that's including me, but we also have biologists and sociologists, political scientists, economists that try to capture the essence of it, of all the different angles of climate change. Because as you as you see already here, climate mitigation is a societal problem. We have to solve this without causing harm to the economy globally. Yeah? We have to switch the entire energy system of the planet to renewable energies because as long as we emit carbon, the carbon stays in the atmosphere practically forever and as long as we do this, we increase the temperature of the planet. So there is a societal aspect to it, and we work on this. But there's also a societal aspect to adaptation. You know, the, um, the climate impacts generally occur at one place. So you could say that adaptation is a local phenomenon. But the moment you include some kind of justice into the equation, it becomes a non-local, non-local, it becomes a global question. Because the people who suffer most from it, from climate change, are not necessarily the ones that cause the problem. And um, in, in the future, we will have to really harvest the entire creativity and innovative power of the planet in order to face this problem in adaptation. And for this, we need a global scheme and global incentive scheme, uh, which is complicated, I guess, and we'll have to make it robust. And these are the problems that, that we work on uh, in Potsdam. Professor Anders Leverman is from Potsdam University in Germany and the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. He also works with Columbia University in New York. We've been discussing an important new paper published in the journal Science Advances. The title is Adaptation Required to Preserve Future High-End River Flood Risk at Present Levels. You can find links to all of this in my show blog at ecoshock.org, published every Wednesday. Anders, thank you so much for sharing your valuable time with us. No, it was great. Really, really, I mean, you, you're very, very informed and, and very impressed, and, and thanks a lot you know, for getting so deep into our study. I mean it. It's really great. Thanks. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. The way downtown cities are built, extreme heat may drive you out. It's pretty close to that right now in Darwin, Australia, where temperatures up to 70 degrees C and astounding 158 degrees Fahrenheit have been measured in certain places in the central business district. It doesn't have to be that way. We can go a long way towards adapting urban heat islands into something much more livable. Our next guest is an expert in that. Professor Matt Santamuris is currently Professor of High Performance Architecture in the University of New South Wales in Australia, but he's a global guy as a Professor of Energy Physics at the University of Athens and visiting Professor at times at universities in London, Tokyo, Italy, and Singapore. Matt is Editor-in-Chief of the journal Energy and Buildings. He's the author and editor of 14 books on heat islands, solar energy, and energy conservation in buildings. Good stuff. He's published over 180 peer-reviewed papers. Matt Santamuris, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you very much for your invitation. Well, this is a good time to be talking about heat where you are. What was the weather like in Australia? We had a very serious heat wave last, uh, let's say, January and February, where in Western Sydney we had temperatures close to 45 degrees for more than, uh, for more than a week. 
Well, I interview a lot of scientists about the rise in global mean temperatures, but you're looking at the extremes hitting urban areas right now. Why is it important to look at very local temperatures as well? Because, uh, you know, local temperature affect uh, the quality of life, you know, of people. Once you have very high temperatures, you have a tremendous impact on energy, you have a tremendous impact on morbidity and mortality, on comfort and health, on peak electricity demand, on cooling demand, on everything. So peak demand and peak temperature really define the quality of life. Average temperature, it doesn't really show something because you may have a low temperature during the night, you may have a very high temperature during the day, so what? You know, uh, it's very important to understand really how is the temperature during the daytime and how is the temperature during the nighttime and which are the characteristics of the variation of the temperature during the day. Now, the city of Darwin is on the north coast of Australia. It's expected to be hot. It is tropical. But have there been some recent studies done about what is happening in their downtown area or as they would call it, the central business district? Yes, uh, we have monitored the whole area. And uh, we have, uh, let's say, collected a lot of data about the ambient temperature and the surface temperature in the CBD area of Darwin. And uh, we have then uh, developed some monitoring, uh, some some, uh, mitigation technologies and mitigation scenarios in order to decrease the temperature. And actually, uh, we try to implement all these new technologies uh, downtown Darwin. The surface temperature, as, you, as you, you mentioned before, was very high because of the use of non-appropriate materials, for example, the human parking loads and many other things that presented, uh, let's say, surface temperatures up to 70 degrees uh, Celsius, while the ambient temperature was about, let's say, 3 to 4 degrees higher than in the surrounding area. So the intensity of the urban heat island in, uh, in Darwin was about 3 to 4 degrees, and this had a tremendous impact on energy, on mortality, on morbidity, on comfort, and everything. Yes, people die earlier because of extreme heat. We've been doing a series on that on Radio EcoShock. Now, in April 2017, you co-authored a paper titled Mortality Associated with High Ambient Temperatures, Heat Waves, and the Urban Heat Island in Athens, Greece. Please tell us what you found there. Uh, it is well known that, uh, you know, mortality, heat-related mortality, is very much associated with, um, let's say, the peak temperature. And in many places in the world, uh, we have found that, um, that it follows a U-shaped curve. Uh, and the higher the temperature, the higher, let's say, the mortality. There is a threshold temperature over which mortality is increasing almost exponentially. And this threshold temperature is not the same for every place. For example, for Athens, it is close to 32.5 degrees because people there is adapted to high temperatures. But in London, it's close to 23 degrees. In every place, there is a threshold temperature over which heat-related mortality is increasing really exponentially or very highly. So uh, what we found in Athens was that uh, once the temperature exceeds, let's say, the threshold, 32 degrees, uh, mortality is increasing really very rapidly, and, um, and this is this is a major problem because it affects uh, the vulnerable population, it affects the aged people, it affects, uh, let's say, children, it affects those that they are living in non-proper houses, low-income people, and this is, let's say, a social penalty imposed, you know, to those that they cannot really afford to have air conditioning the whole day at home. 
Well, it's partly cultural then and whether people are already adapted or expecting heat, but there's also the factor of the humidity in the weather. Isn't that important as far as mortality goes? It is very important. Humidity is very important. It plays a very important role. Humidity in Athens is not so high. So humidity is not the major problem in Athens. But in other places, for example, in Darwin, humidity is a major problem. So the combination of humidity with, uh, let's say, the ambient temperature can be, let's say, very, very important and may define the levels of uh, heat-related mortality. But uh, let's say all the studies that we have from all the let's say the last uh, heat waves around the world, has also shown that uh, outdoor pollution and indoor pollution, but mainly outdoor pollution, in combination with high temperatures and humidity, may, let's say, create a, a very fat cocktail, you know, for the human beings. On November 27th at News.com in Australia, they published some very revealing heat photos. I liked them. There was a rooftop parking lot that was off the charts hot, while a nearby lot with a large tree was a lot cooler. How can planting help cool off our cities, Matt? Greenery makes it a lot because greenery, you know, offers evapotranspiration and decreases temperature in, in our cities. And at the same time, you know, because of shading and many other functions of greenery, let's uh, say, may help a lot to decrease temperatures and mitigate uh, urban heat island and improve comfort conditions. Greenery is one of the best mitigation technologies we may apply. Also, we have to understand that greenery is very effective after a certain temperature. Above the threshold, greenery is not producing any more evapotranspiration because it has to be protected. It has to protect the water, you know, of, uh, of the tree. And in this case, you know, greenery is not really responding to, uh, to the mitigation. So greenery is a very effective and very, let's say, important uh, mitigation technologies that may help up to a certain, let's say, temperature. Above this temperature, greenery cannot help a lot. And this is the reason that uh, in many parks during heat waves, temperature is higher than outside the parks. And there's been a lot of talk of painting roofs white to reflect more of the sun's energy. You published an article in September 2017 on reflective geoengineering technologies in cities. Matt Santamuris, please tell us about that. Yeah, uh, we have developed some reflective technologies for pavements and roofs. Reflective technologies uh, that really help us to decrease the surface temperature of the pavements and decrease the ambient temperature. Uh, we have more than 200, uh, let's say, applications all around the world, and we have seen that uh, the use of uh, reflective pavements uh, of high technology may reduce, let's say, the surface temperature up to 15 degrees and at the same time decrease the ambient temperature up to 2 to 0.5 degrees. This is very important because it may decrease the cooling load of buildings up to 60-70%, decrease the heat-related mortality by about 60-70% as well, and also decrease the peak electricity demand by 5-6% uh, in the city, and also improve the comfort levels. This is a very mature technology. Actually, we are working with the development of more efficient, let's say, pavement technologies using some very advanced materials. And we hope that in the next five years, we will be able to decrease the ambient temperature up to four or five degrees. Wait a minute. If we just change the way we build things and the way we pave things, we could reduce mortality by about 60% and save about 60% on the energy use of buildings? Energy use for cooling and the heat-related mortality, not mortality in general. <laughs> right. Well, that's still an amazing amount. We should we should get going on that. 
of course, of course. So the, the recent study we have performed for Western Sydney, it shows that um, in the northwestern part of the city, where temperature is about 9 degrees higher than in the eastern part of the city, uh, the application of advanced mitigation technologies may reduce the peak temperature up to 2.5 degrees, but at the same time decrease, let's say, the heat-related mortality by about 90%. Uh, just to understand that um, in the eastern part of the city, uh, heat-related mortality is close to seven, let's say, deaths per 100,000 inhabitants. In the western part of the city, maybe close to 14. Application of, uh, let's say, uh, mitigation, advanced mitigation technologies may reduce heat-related mortality down to seven, which is, let's say, a decrease close to 90%. Well, of course, the real solution is, as you say, to slash our greenhouse gas emissions. And I see you're involved in a project called Zero Plus. The longer title sounds really exciting. Achieving near zero and positive energy settlements in Europe using advanced energy technology. How do you envision these Zero Plus settlements in Europe? Yeah, this is a very prestigious project. This is the flagship of the European Union. And I'm very happy to be the coordinator of this project. This project aims to design and also, in, let's say, build four zero energy settlements, one in Cyprus, one in Italy, one in France, and one in the UK. Actually, we have, the, let's say, finalized the design, and two out of the four settlements are under construction, and we expect that, uh, let's say, by the beginning of the next year, the construction will start in the other, let's say, size. And by, let's say, 2019, all the settlements will be ready. This is a major, let's say, issue because uh, actually we know a, lo- a lot about, let's say, zero energy buildings, and we have optimized zero energy buildings. But we have found that zero energy buildings increase a bit the cost, you know, of the residential or the office buildings in general. So uh, the best way, really, to integrate renewables and energy conservation technologies in the building sector is to have, let's say, a community-integrated renewable and energy efficiency technologies than building integrated technologies. Once the technology, the renewable technologies and the energy efficiency technologies are integrated at the community level, the cost is much lower, the management is much better, and the performance is also, let's say, much better. So this is a win-win situation. This is what we have designed, and this is what we implement, actually, in the four, let's say, settlements. And we expect to have all the monitoring results, the first monitoring results, by the the end of the next year. Matt, could you tell us where one of these zero settlements are so we can look them up on the Internet? Yeah, there's a site, uh, Zero Energy, uh, Zero Plus program. You may, uh, let's say, Google Zero Plus, and you will find the site. And uh, all information is there. Okay. You know, you just reminded me that back, I think it was in 2010, I broadcast a workshop by the Austrian zero-emissions architect Guido Wimmers, and he's designed countless net-zero buildings in Europe, from apartment buildings to schools and municipal offices, and some of them never even had to turn on a furnace or an air conditioner, even in Austria. It makes me wonder why we don't mandate net-zero buildings for new construction, say, in Australia, in the United States, in Canada, where we need them. Uh, in Europe, it is mandatory. Since 2018, all the public buildings, and since 2020... All new private buildings have to be zero energy or uh, almost zero energy buildings. So it is mandatory in, in Europe. In Australia, I think that um, the quality, actually the quality of the building, uh, let's say construction, is not the best possible and a lot of things have to happen. Perhaps of the climate, perhaps for many other reasons, 
let's say, uh, energy protection and uh, the energy consumption of buildings has not taken really the proper attention. I think that there is a huge potential for improvement, and this is something that has to happen here. Uh, in Canada, I think that uh, actually the, the, the level of knowledge about um, uh, zero energy business is very high. I know that there is a wonderful work that is happening actually in the University of Concordia in, in Montreal. I know that there are many, many zero energy buildings. I think that this is not a technical problem. Um, the knowledge is there. It is more, let's say, a commercial problem. It is let's more a policy problem if, uh, let's say, the governments they like really to invest in it and push, let's say, the country towards such a direction. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. I'm talking with Professor Matt Santamuris from the University of New South Wales in Sydney. And extreme city heat is getting pretty important. It's uncomfortable for people in those urban heat sinks. It can be deadly. I'm wondering, Matt, can we just keep air conditioning everything so we arrive by an air-conditioned car, we get out into air-conditioned buildings? We're making these technical cool bubbles to stay alive as long as the power stays on, but there must be limits to how much we can do. There are some limits, for sure. Uh, depends, you know, on the magnitude of the problem. Uh, once, you know, the ambient temperature is, uh, let's say, very close to the temperature of the human body, yes, we have many alternatives and we may, let's say, avoid the use of air conditioning and we may apply some passive cooling techniques and we may reduce uh, substantially the use of uh, air conditioning. Uh, once uh, the ambient temperature indoor or outdoor is close to the, uh, the body temperature, we may apply several passive cooling techniques and uh, we may, let's say, avoid the use of air conditioning. Actually, we have designed buildings with almost a zero energy consumption for cooling or very, very low energy consumption for cooling. So, uh, yes, it is possible. But on the other hand, once temperature exceeds a certain threshold, for example, during heat waves, you may have 45 degrees, 46 degrees. Adaptation is very difficult. And uh, although the quality of the building may reduce the cooling needs, let's say up to 60, 70, 80% depends on the quality of the building, human beings cannot really afford to live under these conditions for a long period. So air conditioning is absolutely necessary. In this case, we need some technical adaptation measures to protect the population and especially the vulnerable population. We don't have alternatives, you know, for such a range of temperatures. We can really avoid the use of air conditioners up to 35, 34, 35 degrees, and it's not so simple, but we can do that. But once the temperature is much higher than the temperature of the human body, then we don't have enough of alternatives really to protect human beings. Matt, the latest paper you co-authored is called Aerial Survey and In-Situ Measurements of Materials and Vegetation in the Urban Fabric. I'm wondering, how do you do this? What tools do you use to really find out what the heat is in cities? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're using drones. We have uh, developed, uh, designed and developed some drones that uh, they may literally record information uh, in different in the, in, in the visible, say, spectrum about the surface temperature and the ambient temperature in the cities. Both in Athens and in, in Sydney, uh, we're using uh, some sophisticated drones, and uh, these drones are following some energy buses, so which uh, are equipped with uh, some uh, antennas going up to 20 meters. 
where all the possible instruments have been placed. So we can measure uh, all the, let's say, characteristics of the ambient temperature and at the same time with uh, the drone, the characteristics of the surface temperature, and so have a very good knowledge of what is happening, you know, in the urban environment. Uh, monitoring and diagnostic tools are extremely important if we like really to offer solutions for our cities. If we don't do that, unfortunately, we don't have the proper information and we risk it to solve the wrong problem. We may apply, let's say, technologies that are not really the better technologies or the best technologies to solve the problem. So it is very, very important to understand the nature of the problem, the characteristics of the problem through proper diagnostic techniques, and then design and apply the proper mitigation technologies. Are cities starting to apply these adaptation techniques? Where are we now in this process? Depends on the city. In Europe, actually, there are some adaptation measures and uh, some emergency measures trying really to to offer the proper, let's say, adaptation policies to people that cannot really afford to have an air condition at home or their vulnerable population, etc. So they open some, let's say, sport facilities, air conditioning sport facilities. They offer air conditioning, transport, uh, many, many things. And this really may save lives. But the more important is not there. The most important, in my opinion, is really to have a, a global policy to improve the quality of the built environment. It is extremely important to, to improve the quality of our cities, improve the quality of our, let's say, buildings. So it is very, very significant, you know, first of all, to avoid the overheating of our cities and to use the proper materials, use greenery, use water, use some sophisticated mitigation technologies, we are able to decrease the peak temperature of our cities up to 3 degrees. In the next years, we'll be able to decrease temperature up to 4 or 5 degrees. These technologies have to be implemented. We have already many, many examples, more than 200 implementations all around the world, very successful. At the same time, we have all the technology, all the knowledge to improve the quality of our buildings, decrease the energy consumption, provide comfort, have a better air quality, so this is, in my opinion, one of the highest priority. And it is not just a priority that uh, will, let's say, improve the quality of living, which is of life, which is very important. But on the other hand, will create huge opportunities for employment, huge opportunities, you know, for further development, will be a new, let's say, financial opportunity for, for the whole world. So retrofitting of our cities, retrofitting of our buildings, in my opinion, is one of the major, let's say, opportunities and is a win-win, let's say, situation. We have been talking with Professor Mateos Santamuris. He teaches at several universities, including Athens right now. He's with the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. And I'll put links to some of Matt's papers in his bio and the new science we've talked about in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Too often, every new leader has to assert their green credentials by announcing a brand new energy policy, and often in their own name. Or in the case of Donald Trump, of course, and Malcolm Turnbull of Australia, they announced their black credentials by dismantling energy policy of their predecessors. The trouble is, with each political change, we lose a lot of time we don't have. That's both a warning and advice contained in a letter published December 7th in the journal Nature 
I think this matters. Our guide is a co-author of this telling comment in Nature, Professor Laura Diaz-Anadon. Laura is a professor of climate change policy in the Department of Land Economy at the University of Cambridge. Anadon holds a PhD in chemical engineering from Cambridge and a master's degree in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School, where she's also a research associate. She has advised governments, United Nations agencies, and many large institutions and corporations. Laura, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex, for having me. You know, I avoid large-scale policy discussions, but your paper talks, frankly, about the ways politics can interfere with the need to decarbonize. Who organized this comment for publication and why? I have been working since 2008 uh, from my time at the Harvard Kennedy School with a group of people, my co-authors in that paper, about what can governments around the world do to uh, accelerate the development and deployment of low-carbon energy technologies. And what we've realized over the past 10 years or so is that we have a growing amount of evidence regarding what works and what doesn't in terms of government programs. So with the work that uh, my colleagues and I had done, uh, focused on various countries, mainly the U.S., but uh, more recently also the U.K., China, and other countries, we realized it was time to try to pull together what we had learned collectively. Lately, North Americans have heard a little too much about Donald Trump politicizing energy policy and climate change. So why don't you tell us the history of U.K. leaders from Blair onward announcing their programs? The comparison with the U.K. is interesting because here in the U.K., the controversy is not about whether or not climate change exists is real and we should do something about it. The history in the UK and the volatility in policy in the UK is more about the how. So here there's agreement that there's a problem and that the UK government should do something, but there has been a lot of volatility in terms of the government funding and programs to address the problem. So starting with Tony Blair, uh, in 2001 he created the UK Carbon Trust which was funded to do all kinds of things. It worked as an incubator, as a grant program, as a mentoring system, doing audits. So it was a significant organization. They were tracking progress. And what happened is that once uh, David Cameron took over, they completely reduced the funding for the Carbon Trust and created the catapults, which were a completely different type of policy to address the threat of climate change. I could give you several other examples of institutions that were created in the UK to address climate change, but basically the thrust of the issue is that uh, different political leaderships created their own institution, funding mechanism, research lab to advance competitiveness and low-carbon energy technologies while reducing defunding the previous institution without really looking into what that previous institution had delivered. And what um, I would argue, and I've done some work on this, is that in the case of the Carbon Trust, they were doing a lot of great work. And we have evidence in terms of CO2 emissions reductions, in terms of technologies on the market, in terms of energy efficiency improvements. So the the scaling down of the UK Carbon Trust, uh, as an example, is one that cannot really be uh, attributed to their failure to meet goals. I think governments do need to take a lead. What has been the story of funding for energy innovation in the United States? So this is also 
an area I've been working on for the past 10 years. In fact, my colleague, Kelly Sims Gallagher, who is now at Tufts University and myself, have maintained a database that is at the Harvard Kennedy School right now. So we've been tracking this since uh, 1978. And um, basically what we see is that the U.S. Department of Energy funding for energy research development and demonstration uh, was at its peak in the late 1970s at around $9 billion in 2015 dollars. Um, this is not surprising because it was in the wake of the oil crisis, so there was a lot of concern about how to develop alternatives, uh, domestic alternatives to imported oil. And what happened then is that during the Reagan administration, of course, oil prices uh, were lower, and also there was this different government approach that, uh, that believed that markets would take care of uh, innovation to a greater extent. So funding went down significantly by about 60-70%. So funding was more around $3 billion, government funding, um, that is until around um, 2006, and then it started increasing most recently, of course, during the two Obama administrations. So now we're basically at around uh, $6 billion, so we're nowhere near the peak. And um, what we, you might have heard, and a lot of your listeners might have heard, is that the um, the Trump administration has proposed a very significant uh, reduction in U.S. government funding for energy research and development. In fact, depending on how one measures it, uh, if you look at overall funding, it's around a 35% proposal, but if you look at the more kind of targeted energy research and development, it's about a 57% cut. And this includes, by the way, zeroing out some of the institutional innovations that were created during the first Obama administration, most prominently the following recommendations from a very influential report, the rising above the gathering storm, partly with stimulus funding, the Obama administration created ARPA-E, which is an agency that was modeled after DARPA, which is the, the you know, famously known as the government agency responsible for a lot of the innovations we have in our iPhones to Internet and so forth. So the, the Obama administration created ARPA-E, and similar to the story of the Carbon Trust, ARPA-E has been reviewed independently and also by the national academies. There's a report so in spite of the fact that there's a broad agreement across analysts, independent analysts, that it was an agency that, that was being promising, already producing some results, although, of course, with innovation, we have to wait. But it's, you know, the early indicators were good. Then um, the Trump budget proposal is to completely eliminate this agency, which was receiving around $300 million per year. So we do see some similarities uh, in terms of the government, different administrations' approaches to dealing with institutional innovations from previous administrations. But the, the one thing I will add is that in terms of U.S. government funding, I talked about how in the late, um, in the late 80s, uh, the U.S. government was funding around $9 billion. During the 80s and 90s, it was around 3 to $4 billion. Now we're around 6 all analysis, all papers, experts, commissions, including uh, my own work, suggest that a much, much bigger in the orders of two, three, even ten in some cases, orders of magnitude greater would be uh, granted in terms of not just the ability of these investments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but also to uh, reduce energy costs and improve competitiveness. So
So the $6 billion that we're in right now, and that's not including the proposed cuts in the Trump budget, all analysis suggests that much bigger government investments in energy R&D would be beneficial for U.S. citizens. We have to wrap up now. Is there anything else that I've missed that you would like to tell our listeners? These investments are what is going to make a difference in both our ability to meet the climate challenge, but also providing, uh, you know, increasing opportunities to um, people in the U.S. I think is the economic argument for investing in R&D, even though some, you know, some programs will fail. And I think in addition to we need to invest more, and one of the reasons we need to invest more is also competitiveness, the U.S. competitiveness. Uh, I think the, the third thing is that, yes, we need to invest more, but we also need to learn how to fail. So one thing that we do talk in the article that often gets forgotten both by people in policy but also the public is that innovation is unpredictable. We don't really know ahead of time what particular technologies are going to succeed, and innovation takes time. But without the willingness to take these risks, then we wouldn't have the Internet, we wouldn't have, you know, solar cells, we wouldn't have, uh, you know, fracking, for example, which, again, for, you know, there's the impact of fracking on climate is one where we can have a whole other discussion, but um, government programs should be willing to take risks and be able able to tolerate failure, uh, which means that we need to learn from those failures. I think that's the, the, the last point, that whenever we hear about some of the arguments against government funding for energy, we hear, oh, there was this program and it failed, and then this program and it failed, and that, that's really not our, an argument that I think should carry the day, because without failures, we wouldn't have successes. I think the important thing and the point we make in the article is that there needs to be a process to learn from these failures. And this is the adaptive uh, learning point that I mentioned, which requires collecting information uh, on a regular basis, evaluating progress, and being willing to change, but based on evidence and not on political changes. From Cambridge University, we've been speaking with climate professor Laura Diaz-Anadon. She is co-author of a new comment in the journal Nature titled Six Principles for Energy Innovation. Thank you so much for joining us on Radio EcoShock, Laura. Thank you very much, Alex. We're out of time for this week. I am Alex Smith. Please tune in again for the great drama of our time on Radio EcoShock. Thank you for listening.